Amen. Well, thanks and good morning. I am. Um, we, we've been wrestling throughout our history as a church of how do we do offering well? We just did offering well, really well. Um, if we started each day like that, of just offering yourself fully to God and saying, here I am, can you imagine what a difference that makes? So thank you, worship band, for, for giving us that opportunity to, to offer ourselves here today. Well, I want to transition to our message by giving a very sincere thank you to you for being here today, um, those who are here and those who are watching online, because the teaching series that we're in is as important a teaching series as we could take on in this culture that we're a part of. Everywhere we turn, people are drawing battle lines in our culture, battle lines between, between uh, political ideologies and religious convictions and economic status and lines between race and lines between gender. And, and everywhere you turn, it seems like someone is having a battle with somebody else. And there's our side and there's your side and our side's right and your side is wrong. And almost a year ago, we said, we've got to put something on our calendar. We've got to put a series on our calendar where we just press into this. And the title, you haven't seen all the titles that we've had in the past, but we've had a title change on this series probably about 10 times you know, trying to say, what, what God would you have us to say as we press into this? And the one we landed on is Advocates. That's the series that we're in right now, Advocates. And in this series, what we've been doing is we're looking into the scriptures and we're doing the best we can to seek wisdom from God to say, how do, we, how do we do reconciliation well? In a world that's so divided, how do we do this well? God, what would you have us to do? If there was a question that defined our series, maybe this is it. And there's a place to write this down in your notes if you want to, uh, try to write that down, maybe to remember it a little bit better uh, several days from now. The question we're wrestling with this is this, how do we become more effective advocates? How do we become the effective advocates for reconciliation in a deeply divided world? Because I, I don't know anybody who's anti-reconciliation. You know, I, I don't know anybody that would, you'd ask them, are you for or against reconciliation? I'm for it. But how do we do it effectively? How do we do it well? How do we do it in a God-honoring way? And I absolutely love the graphic that Mike created for this series. Um, if you want to pull out your, your bullet and take a look at this, um, and then for those online, if we throw it up on the screens for th those who are watching, um, I love this graphic because this is true of us. If, if we try to do reconciliation well, we're going to stand out like this. Do you see the little faded arrows all going the other way? Isn't that the culture? They're going the way towards polarization. They're going the way towards my side, your side. If we try to do this well, we're going to stand out we're going to stand out in a pretty dramatic way. And no one in history stood out more on this topic than Jesus of Nazareth. Why do I say that? Because here we are 2,000 years later, other side of the world, and we're looking at his teachings, we're looking at his examples. That's what we're going to do today as we continue our series. We're going to look at the single most effective thing that Jesus did. And here it is. You can write this down in your notes if you'd like. Jesus of Nazareth embodied sacrificial, costly love for his neighbors. And that's a term that we're going to define as best we can today, the way that Jesus defined it. Jesus of Nazareth embodied sacrificial, costly love for his neighbors. Let's look today at an example that Jesus set that is linked to a teaching that Jesus gave. So let's open up our Bibles if you brought them. We're going to look today at start our parable that we have today. We're actually going to be digging into a teaching that Jesus did through a story. Uh, it's found in Luke chapter 10, starting with 20. Five, verse 25. Now, I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We keep a stack of them at our entrance slash exits there with the mugs. 
Um, I also, someone said, tell people about free resources too that are online resources. So in your bulletin, there's a good one there too called Version that you can download for free. It's a, it's a great resource if you don't have a Bible at home. All right, let's, uh, what I want to do here is I want to read the story in its entirety and then we're going to back up actually 700 years prior and we're going to get a running start at it and then break it into little pieces. Here we go. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? Lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and he saw him, but he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of this guy, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when, you, when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to the lawyer, go and do likewise. So this is the parable we're going to unpack here today. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you've ever heard the term Samaritan or Good Samaritan, how many have heard that term before today? Samaritan, Good Samaritan, this is where it comes from. If you ever heard that term out there in our culture, this is where that term originated, this story that Jesus told. And it's so much richer in context. So much richer in context. You know, I, I grew up hearing this in Sunday school and that they told us what they should have told us at that age. There's so much more to it, and I'm excited to unpack it today. Now, if time wasn't limited, what we would have to do to do this story justice is start in Genesis 1-1 and work at all the stuff that leads up to it because there's connections all the way from Genesis 1-1 to Luke 10. And then if we really wanted to do it justice, we'd have to keep going after this parable ends and tie in all that. We don't have that much time. So let's look quickly today to get a running start to give more context. Let's look quickly, quickly today, two, passages, two verses from Isaiah 50, and then we're going to look at a longer section from Luke 9 to help unpack the richness of this. So let's go to Isaiah. This is now 700 years before the story was told. 700 years, um, there was a prophecy that this is part of it coming from the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6, and it says this, this prophecy uh, that was written so long before. I gave my back to those who strike, and I, my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, this ancient prophecy is attributed to what's called the Messiah, a servant of God that was to come in years to come. And this Messiah was going to be known by his compassion and his justice. He was going to be known for his wise and comforting words. And yet, this prophecy is stating that this servant is going to 
suffer. He is going to be greeted with abusive opposition. The very next verse is verse 7, and it says this in the prophecy, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint. Remember that. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The reason I have you remember that phrase is that this Messiah that was to come as part of this prophecy, he was going to deliberately choose this path of costly obedience. When the time came for him to do the suffering, he was going to willingly choose it. All right, so now we're going to fast forward. Fast forward about 700 years to Luke chapter 9. We started with the story from Luke chapter 10. Let's go to Luke chapter 9 and get a little bit more of the context that leads up to the story that Jesus told about a good Samaritan. So let's go Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and beyond. It says this, Jesus caused, called the 12 disciples together and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he said to his disciples, Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel, and what? What does it say? They were healing everywhere. Now, I want to point out something. I think I pointed this out before in this room that's very liberating, at least to me. Will you ever reach 100% of the people you try to reach? Will you ever reach 100%? No, not unless you've got a better batting average than the disciples of Jesus or Jesus himself. That's liberating for me, to know it's not just my fault. I did something wrong. There are times where you will do everything, quote, right, or most everything right, and people are going to reject your message, even if, the power of God is working through you and he's healing people. God could even be healing people through you and they could still reject you and your message. That's liberating for me. There's times where Jesus himself says you can walk away, shake the dust from your feet and continue on. But Jesus says more than that and we see this as we keep reading and this is where it gets really intense because there are times where following Jesus will require you to give your back to those who strike. Let's jump ahead. Verse 22. This is still from chapter 9. This is still prior to what Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, the Son of Man, this suffering servant, the Messiah, the Son of Man who is to come, that's me, must suffer many things. He will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He will be killed and on the third day he will be raised. And Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose or forfeit themselves? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is intense. Now, I can't, picture, I, I can't think of any instances where when Jesus called people to follow him, he said, now with every eye closed, every head bowed, no one peeking, who wants to be my disciple? Now, there may be a place for that. It may or may not. But did Jesus ever do that? If he did, come and talk to me afterwards and I'll, I'll recant. I, I don't know of an example where he did that. But I do know this. 
I know several examples where Jesus said something similar to what he says here, where he says, the Son of Man will suffer, the Son of Man will be rejected, the Son of Man will lay down his life. Who's with me? He did that several places. This was the example that Jesus set. Make no mistake, following Jesus is costly. You're asked to lay everything down, everything. You may get it back tenfold. You may get it back a hundredfold, but you're asked to lay everything down and take up your cross daily and follow him. You may be rejected by the people you love. You may be asked to forsake the kinds of things that people fight for. You may find yourself advocating for people who are your adversaries. That was certainly the example Jesus set, and he did so willingly. Let's keep reading. Luke 9, verse 51. Again, this all comes before the story Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. Luke 9, verse 51 says this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he did what? He set his face. There's that phrase, 700 years ago. He set his face, and where did he set it? This is really important. Where did he set it? Towards Jerusalem. When the time came, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, from this point on, and we have talked about this before when we did a study on the book of Luke, this is a turning point in Luke, and everything that happens in the book of Luke from this point until Jesus gets to Jerusalem happens on a journey. It happens on the journey, on a path from Jesus going from where he was in Galilee to Jerusalem, this region called Galilee to the city of Jerusalem, and guess what lies between the two? Guess what lies between, on a map, Galilee and Jerusalem? Let's take a look. It says it right here. It calls it out. Luke 9, 52. The very next verse. Jesus sent his messengers. He sets his face to Jerusalem. He sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. The Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, if you're going to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, the context makes such a difference. It brings it so alive. And I know probably most of you already know all these things. Some of these things I didn't know before this week, and I just want to share them with you or just share the fact that I'm excited about this with you if you already know this. What I have up here is a map, a map. Now, this line right here, my daughter was like, what is that, Dad, when she was in here earlier? This is the Mediterranean Sea right here, okay? So this is the shore of Israel. Israel, modern-day Israel would be right here. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. Now, we have two stars and a dot. The two stars and the dot represent, the two stars represent two capital cities. This is what was called Samaria. This is Jerusalem. And then this little dot is Jericho. What happened was this area was once united under the rule of King David, and they called it the nation of Israel. When David's son Solomon died, he was the king, it got divided into two, two nations. So you had the northern nation, which was called Israel. You had the southern kingdom, which was called Judea. All right? And the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Samaria. The capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. And the border kind of cut almost through Jericho there. Now, when the Assyrians came and invaded, they took over this northern kingdom around 700 B.C., right around the time when Isaiah was writing that prophecy. The Assyrians come in, they take over this nation. And as was their custom, when they took over this region, they named this region after the capital city, which was what? Samaria. So this whole region became known as Samaria. 
And now the Samaritans, there's some controversy about the makeup of the Samaritans. But what I was always taught was this narrative. I was always taught that they were a mixed race, that when Assyria came in, carried everybody off, the people that repopulated were a mixture of people who were of um, Jewish blood and other blood. Now, that may or may not be true, but the Samaritans themselves, who still live in this area, have a different narrative. They say, no, it's, it's not a mixture. We were Jewish. We were the descendants of the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, that as, as Assyria came in and wiped us out, we weren't annihilated. We came back and we populated that area. So there's disagreement regarding the racial makeup of these people, but where there's no disagreement is the fact that there was tension. There was tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. You can even see it in the scriptures. In John chapter 4, verse 9, it flat out says, Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Tensions were so high that if we can put this, pretend this map is a map of our area, right? Pretend that this area up here is Minnesota. Pretend there's Iowa, and then this is Kansas City, all right? Tensions were so high that if Minnesota is Galilee, and we're a Jew who wants to make a pilgrimage down to Kansas City, we don't go down 35. We kick out to Wisconsin, Illinois. We go around. That's what they did. If you were a Jewish pilgrim living in Galilee and you wanted to make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you wouldn't go through Samaria. You would go around Samaria. You'd cut around down here, cross the Jordan, go through Jericho, and then you'd walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was like that. People would actually go around the region just so they didn't have to get into all of that conflict. Now, here's what happened when Jesus and his disciples violated the social norms, because they did. This is the very next verse. This is picking up right where we left off. Luke chapter 9, verse 53. And again, remember, this comes before the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans did not receive Jesus. Why did they not receive him? Open book. Why did they not receive him? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. His face was set towards Jerusalem. The Samaritan said, you're going to Jerusalem? You're coming through the wrong neighborhood. This is the wrong neighborhood. What are you doing here? You go around. You go the other way. Now, this is an important piece of information, and it speaks to our situation today, doesn't it? I think it does, and how divided we are. Were the Samaritans completely free from sin and prejudice? No. And I cannot think of any two groups that are at war with one another, whether it's emotional or social or physical, I can't think of any two groups where one side is completely fine and they don't have any issues, no prejudice, they're just all 100% right, and another side is 100% wrong. Are there situations where some are certainly more wrong than right? Yes. I've never met two groups that are at odds with one another where one side is sin-free, prejudice-free, and the other side is the one that's 100% messed up. Now, fortunately, in this case, this is the disciples of Jesus, right? They've been with Jesus three years. This is the, towards the end of his ministry. So this is Jesus with Peter and John and all those guys who've been mentored. The disciple that Jesus loved, the, the disciple that wrote John 3.16, and John sees this tension. He sees the tension between the Samaritans and the disciples, and so he's got this great plan. Here's how we're going to resolve the tension. 
he says this with his brother James. When James and John saw the Samaritan reaction, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's the plan. That's the plan. And Jesus just looks at him and goes, what? You know, imagine that after three years of investing in these guys. He rebukes them. And they went on to another village. Now, this passage, again, gives me hope for a couple reasons. It gives me hope because here's another example. Jesus is like, you know, this is so messed up. Let's forget. Let's just go, guys. Let's just keep walking. I'll rebuke you. We got to keep going. That's one reason it gives me hope. There are some situations that are so messed up that you're just like, walk away. But it also gives me hope because it is so easy for me to go where John went. When I feel attacked, when I feel someone coming at me, when I feel that some other group is so wrong on something, it is so easy when I'm fired upon to do what? Fire back. To fire back. It's so easy to fall into that trap because we live in a fallen world and it's so easy to fall in the trap of they fired on me, I fired back. It's so easy to start down the path of thinking we're right, they're wrong, God's on our side, so let's fight for our position. And if Johnny Newcomb can be transformed by the teaching and example and spirit of Christ, there's hope for us too. And why do I think Johnny Newcomb was transformed? Because read his gospel. If we had more time, I'd love to go to John chapter 4 and show you this thing that he includes, this story that he includes of a Samaritan woman and the beautiful story of reconciliation that he includes in his own gospel. Was he changed by the life and teaching example, spirit of Christ? Yes, he was. He was. If we had more time, I'd like to also just keep reading from here all the way up to the start of the Good Samaritan story, all the way up to 1025. Because between here and there, there's more teaching on the cost of following Jesus. There's another example of Jesus sending out this time 72 disciples. And there's more examples of people rejecting Christ. But we don't have much more time, so let's go to the parable that we opened with, uh, 1025. Behold, a lawyer stood up and he put Jesus to the test. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now in context, this is an abrupt interruption. Why do I say it's an abrupt interruption? Because in verse 23, right before this, Jesus is having a private conversation, and it appears as though this guy just butts right in, just jumps right in. And again, if we had more time, it'd also be fascinating to use this as a jumping-off point because the lawyer asks a very specific question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you realize in Luke 18, there's another guy that asks Jesus the exact same question, and the rich young ruler in Luke 18 gets a different answer than the answer that Jesus gives this guy. If you had more time, I encourage you to, on your own, read that and try to ask your question, why? Why didn't Jesus answer the same thing to, to the same question? But for the sake of time, let's focus on the lawyer. Let's focus on this parable. The lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that. The question isn't, what must I believe? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the question that Jesus is ultimately going to answer. He's going to answer what that guy must do to inherit eternal life. The lawyer gives his answer. And Jesus says this, after the lawyer gives that, Jesus says, hey, you've answered correctly. Do this, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said, okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Now, this is loaded. 
who's my neighbor, is loaded. It's loaded because the answer that the lawyer gave Jesus was a mashup of two verses. It's actually an answer that Jesus gave before when asked what are the most important commandments. The lawyer took Deuteronomy 6.5, which is love God. He mashed it up with Leviticus 19, let me remember the address here, 19.18, that says love your neighbor as yourself. He does a mashup. The reason he says, who's my neighbor, is because he wants Jesus to say, where's the boundary of the neighborhood? Because in Leviticus 19, 18, in context, the context is your Jewish neighbor. That's the context. So it could be that this lawyer is saying, where do you draw the line, Jesus? What's our neighborhood? Who do we love? Who are our people that we're to care for like this? That's what the lawyer may have been doing. And instead of Jesus saying, oh, here's the line, Here's your neighborhood. Jesus tells a story, and he does some fascinating things with this story. If you ever heard Jesus called the master teacher, this is the kind of reason why. He was the master teacher. Jesus replies with this story. He says, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus replies, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What name did Jesus give that man? He didn't give him a name, did he? Brilliant. Brilliant. Because then who could this man be? He could be anyone. He could be Jewish. He could be Samaritan. He could be a lawyer. He could be a tax collector. He could be a sinner. He could be a saint. This unmaimed man who could be anyone, is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's literally going down. If you were coming home, let's say you lived in Galilee, and you were coming home from your pilgrimage, you would not go through Samaria, you would literally go down to Jericho. It was about a 3,200-foot drop that you're going down over 17 miles through a really narrow valley. At times, at least it's very narrow, and it was really dangerous. It was desolate. It was rocky. It was desert country. It was filled with hills and valleys that were perfect for robbers who wanted to do the very things that they did to this guy. This thing happened. This is a story that could have, he could have used regular people. He could have said, remember that guy who was walking down you know, last week because this was a dangerous path. And this guy was going down, and as he was going down, he was jumped. Verse 31, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw unnamed man, he passed unnamed man by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now many sources that I looked at mentioned how the priest may have had an excuse because the priest may have looked at the guy, said the guy's dead, and a priest, if they touch the dead guy, becomes unclean. But there's all kinds of problems with that. All kinds of problems with that. The point is clear. The priest, the Levite, should have stopped. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. They should have stopped, but they didn't. But Jesus continues. Luke 10, 33. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the unnamed man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now to the robbers, the traveler, he was someone to exploit. To the priest and the Levite, the traveler was someone to avoid. To the innkeeper, the traveler was a source of income. 
to the Samaritan, this guy was something different. He was a person who needed help. And he had compassion on this guy. The Samaritan in Jesus' story, told to a lawyer who would have not been favorable towards Samaritans, the Samaritan Jesus story responded with a sacrificial and costly love and possibly some irony. This was only in one of my sources, so I don't know if this is correct or not, but one of my sources said not only would a good Jew avoid Samaria, they would specifically avoid Samaritan oil. And how ironic is it that if this guy was a Jewish guy coming back from a pilgrimage, how ironic is it that someone and something that he would have avoided is something that God used to bring about his healing. That's neither here or there. Here's what Jesus does say, Luke 10, 35. The next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of this guy, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I get back. Now, the two denarii, a denarii is a day's wages, and one of my sources said that that would be enough in that time at that place to cover two months at this establishment two months. That's generous. Jesus ends the exchange with this. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the Samaritan. Is that what the lawyer says? I might be reading into this. What does the lawyer say? That guy that showed mercy. You can't even say it. Can't even say it. It was a Samaritan. Just say it. Right? It was a Packer fan. Just say it. Come on. It was a Vikings fan or whatever. We even had a Browns shirt here today. Browns shirt. That was a, I think, a first, man. Anyway, so, but he, this guy, the, the lawyer, may or may not, I might be reading into things here, but the lawyer doesn't even seem to be able to say the word Samaritan. He goes, the one who showed mercy. And then look what Jesus says. He says, go and what? Do likewise. If I had this to redo, I, the top of your notes, scribble out, love your neighbor. Do likewise. That should be the title of this. Do likewise, because that's the point Jesus makes. He says, go, do likewise. I, um, Eric Nelson, he, he's actually had Greek training. He came up afterwards, he goes, I was following along in the Greek. He's like, it's emphatic in the Greek. It is like underscored, underlined. You go, do likewise. Do likewise. The lawyer had come to Jesus with a question. The question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't just say, go have more awareness. Feel good that you feel bad. He doesn't say that. He says, go and do likewise. And here's the thing that just leapt out the page at me as I was studying this and I had my stack of books and going through. I don't know how I missed this for 47 years. Well, maybe because the first four I wasn't much of a reader, but the... the the only way to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying is to consider where Jesus was when he said this. Where did Jesus tell this story about a man who was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho and got jumped? Where was Jesus when he told the story? He was in Jericho. Where was Jesus heading? He was heading to Jerusalem. What path was he going to take? The same and what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. There were priests, and there were Levites, and there were armed men waiting for him in Jerusalem. And what were those armed men going to do and those priests and those Levites? They're going to do exactly what it said in Isaiah 50, verse 6. They were going to 
disgrace him and pull on his beard and spit in his face. They were going to do what, what was done to the man in the, the traveler. They were going to strip him of his clothes. He would, as we read in Isaiah's prophecy, they would willingly, he would willingly, Jesus would willingly give his back to those who strike. He would allow his adversaries to nail him to a cross and it was only after his death that anyone would tend to his wounds and lay him to rest. If you haven't written down anything else, would you please write this down? When Jesus was asked to define who a neighbor is and isn't, Jesus didn't say, here's the neighborhood, here's your, here's your safe little group. He told this story about a path that he was going to walk himself. That's what Jesus did. Sometimes the right thing to do is to just walk away. Sometimes you can have complete peace about that. Sometimes the, the best thing you can possibly do is to just back away. There are other times when to follow Jesus means we set our face like flint towards a future that we are not excited about, towards a confrontation that we don't want to have. And we walk as Jesus walked, that path of costly love. And it is that example that changed the world. That's the example that changed the world. And why do I say that? Read history. Some of the history is recorded in the scriptures itself. Read Acts 1. Read Acts 8. The disciples of Jesus went into Samaria and they brought about reconciliation. And it didn't stop there. The reconciliation that Jesus brought about, his movement, it didn't end with Jews and Samaritans. It, it continued between men and women. There were reconciliation happened there between rich and poor, between slaves and their masters, between Africans and Europeans and Arabs and Asians. And the list keeps growing and growing and growing and growing as followers of Jesus follow his example his example of costly and sacrificial love. Where we as believers say, if God is truly our Father, how can we not follow the example that the Son of God set for our brothers and sisters? And here's one of the things that's so beautiful. And this is, I encourage you to write this in your notes. This isn't just about us. Try real hard now, people. Go out there and do it. We have access to the very spirit of Christ. We have more than his teaching, which he says, go do likewise. We have more than his example, he did likewise. We have his spirit that can be at work within us, changing us, so that it's not us who live, but Christ who lives in us and through us. And the Bible says we can ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We can be led by, guided by the Spirit. Churches fight over, well, are we baptized or are we gifted? Or we Just get more Holy Spirit in your life, you know? There was a guy that came up after the first service. He said, I was talking to a friend of mine who was stationed on, a bat, on an aircraft carrier. He said, you know what people were most at war on that aircraft carrier? He said it was Campus Crusade for Christ and the Navigators, two Christian groups. He said they were the ones who were fighting the most on the aircraft carrier. So what if? We just said, God, we want more of your spirit. Baptize us, gift us, do whatever it is that you do with the Holy Spirit. Give us more of the spirit that was alive in your son that we may live out this teaching, that we may live out this example. And imagine if we did. This is maybe a quarter of our church that's in this room. Imagine if all 500 plus of us 
would follow Jesus' example as the Spirit leads. Can we do everything? No. Will everyone respond? No. But imagine if we all said to the Holy Spirit and we offered ourselves each day, God, here I am. What does this look like? Who's my neighbor today? And how can I respond in sacrificial love? What if we didn't walk past refugees? What if the Holy Spirit convicted us, said, go do likewise? Rob would love to have that conversation with you. Tim Anderson was in this room earlier. What if we didn't walk by kids who are really struggling academically in the Powderhorn neighborhood of Minneapolis? What if the Holy Spirit said, do likewise? Tim would love to have that conversation with you. What if we didn't walk past kids who we know are living in poverty in Juarez, Mexico? If the Holy Spirit prompted us to do likewise, talk to Christina Freeman. She would love to give you some ideas of how you can live like Christ. And what if we didn't walk past those green garbage cans, that, not the main entrance here, but if you go in the other, men, other entrance to this building, you walk and then you take a right. Before you take a right, there's two big cans, plastic cans for food for hungry people. There's a l hundreds of hungry people here in Shoreview, Vadness Heights, New Brighton, Moundsview. What if we didn't walk by those cans, but what if the Spirit came upon us and said, do likewise, what would that look like? We could go on and on and on. Your coworkers, people in your family, what if we just day by day said, God, here I am. What does do likewise mean? Can you imagine what that could look like? So here's the question I want to end with today. Are you loving your neighbor as Jesus modeled and taught? It's a huge challenge for me, and it's one that I'm so glad that we put this on the calendar because it's one that I need to ask more than I ask. So let's ask it right now. Let's pause as we close the service and let's just give the Holy Spirit space to convict us. Let's talk. Lord, I want to thank you. And the first thing I pray <clears throat> is that you don't allow the enemy to flood us with guilt about all the things that we could be doing. Because as an individual, we can't do everything. But we aren't an individual. We're your body. We're your family. So Holy Spirit, would you right now speak to us as individuals, as your individual son or daughter, and may you clear our minds and our hearts that we could hear your still small voice as we ask the question, how do I love my neighbor? Lord, would you give us a neighbor, whether it's in our backyard or across the world, give us a neighbor and tell us what it means to do likewise. And Lord, don't stop that with today, but may that be a question that you, through your spirit, remind us of each and every day. Because it was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross. And there is great joy. There is great joy when we live a life that's aligned with what's right. So this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.